What a great time of celebration this morning with those who have been baptized. Can we give a hand one more time for the Lord for his goodness and faithfulness? We, we have uh, a little, little between 15 and 20 people that have been baptized at both campuses, both here at Park Avenue, also in our Shelby campus, our first baptisms at that campus, and we're thrilled of, about what God is doing there in Shelby, and uh, in fact, there was somebody being baptized this morning that um, they came the first kickoff service that we had there, and they took one of the Bibles that we give away. They've been coming back every week, and they're getting baptized this morning. And so we praise God for what he is doing there in Shelby, as well as these who have taken steps to publicly proclaim their personal faith in Jesus Christ. And for throughout the year, just, to, 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 just some excitement, uh, one of the things that we, we ask ourselves to do as a church, our mission statement is that we would be a church that leads people to the truth, that transforms lives in North Central Ohio and around the world. And we do that through three means, that we want to be a church committed to glorifying God, connected in community, and called to share. We believe that God has called us to share the gospel. And one of the ways that we do that is by, by looking at some of the metrics as to how we go about doing that. And, and we know that we're not just all about numbers. We don't want to be about numbers. We want to be about, about the glory of God. But one of the ways we know whether we're doing well or not is by do people come to Christ and do they get baptized? And this past year, we have already this year seen over around, uh, over 100, about 110 people that have been baptized through Crossroads. And so we want to praise God for that and what God is doing that we are a church called to share the gospel. I want to highlight one thing before we dive into this, the message this morning. Uh, inside your program, as well as at our, at our information center, uh, we have these postcards that say on them, Christmas at Crossroads, and then at the bottom, it gives uh, the title, Lift Up Your Eyes. We have some great Christmas uh, services planned. In fact, we have six Christmas services available for you, for you to invite someone to come join you. And so we've made uh, from Christmas Eve to all the way to Friday night, we have services that are planned that you can invite someone to come with you and join us. We have a great program that's been planned, some great music, great videos, some great stories that are going to be shared this Christmas services. In fact, together with our Shelby campus, we have eight services that are going to be available to our community. Uh, in Shelby, they're going to have two on uh, the 23rd in that morning, and uh, we're obviously packing in there anyway, and so we're going to have two services on that Christmas morning, the 23rd, that weekend, and celebrating the birth of Christ. And then we have six of these Lift Up Your Eyes services, and so we hope that you'll invite people to join you at one of these services. In fact, we want to take every excuse that you might have away. And so if you notice on the back, we've made this a postcard that you can send to a friend, a neighbor, a family member. This morning, if you're willing, if you're willing to fill this out, we have at our information center stamps that are ready for you so that there is no excuse that you cannot send this to a friend. And so if you stop by the information center, we have a stamp there ready for you if you'd like to send this out. If you're going to send it out yourself, invite one person to come. We've made, we've made it available six different times, and so we believe that hopefully the people that you'll invite will have at least one opportunity to come. By the way, on uh, on on a Christmas Eve and on the 23rd, we do offer at our 5 o'clock services that day, uh, we offer uh, child care. So at 5 o'clock, we'll have child care. At our 7 o'clock services, we won't. Um, so we, we invite you to come. Uh, those services are going to be exciting. All of them are identical. So we hope you'll come out to that. 
If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, and to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in both texts this morning, Genesis chapter 3 and Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you, underneath the seat. If you would, grab that Bible, turn with us to page 3, and then prepare yourself by getting to page 981. Genesis chapter 3, page 3, and Philippians chapter 2, page 981. We're kicking off a series this week that we're calling Echoes of Hope. You know, we live in a world that is filled with hopelessness, isn't it? We see it every day on the news. You see it on, uh, in the newspaper. You see it on social media. There's, there's just brokenness and depression and despair. And there's hopelessness that we see all throughout our communities. And where hope really lies is in the understanding that we have of history. See, if we understand that hope finds itself and finds itself in the foundation of history of promises that have been made as we expect them to be fulfilled in the future, we then do well to understand what God is doing. So for you and I as Christians, our hope today for the future is wrapped in a promise that God made yesterday that gives us faithfulness in the present. See, that's how hope should function. Hope that we have today in something in the future finds itself faithful in today because we know of the promise of yesterday. And that's what our culture is lacking. That's what our culture is missing, is this idea of true hope, hope that does not disappoint, because it's founded in the faithfulness of a God who is promised. It's found in the faithfulness of people that know the promise of God, that now live out that hope every single day. When we go back 2,000 years ago to the story of Christmas, we find a bit of hopelessness. And that hopelessness really shouldn't have been there. Why? Because they should have known the promises of God. In fact, Christmas really begins all the way at the beginning. And so we're going to go back to the very beginning, and we're going to look at how hope has echoed through the centuries to bring us the picture and purpose of Jesus Christ. We go back all the way to Genesis in the beginning, and we find this message of history actually being a message of hope. Take a look with me, Genesis chapter 3, and, and, and let me kind of set up the story. In Genesis, we have the creation account. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God creates. God creates uh, the earth. God creates the moon. God creates the galaxies. God creates the sky and the seas and the land. God creates everything in it, the trees, the plants, the flowers. God creates the beasts of the field and the animals of earth. He also then creates Adam and Eve, man and woman. If you've been here for any time, you've heard probably this message, right, that God creates man, and out of the dust of the ground, he creates him, and then he notices that man needs a, 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 a mate, man needs a friend, man needs someone to do life with, that God brings us community from the very beginning, and so God saw it was not good that man had lived alone, so he creates a woman, and remember, it's the way she got her name was because Adam saw her when he woke up from his sleep, and he said, whoa, man. Or, better yet, better yet, in Hebrew, the name man is Ish, the name woman is Isha. He saw woman and he said, ah, Isha. And uh, that is how she became woman. 
and, and they do life together. And, and God gave them dominion over everything. We find in Genesis chapter 2 that God gives them dominion. He says, hey, everything on this earth is yours. Everything is for your enjoyment. But I'm going to ask you not to eat of one tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of it. The moment you eat, you will surely die. Now think about God's good grace. God's grace is not only giving them dominion over everything on earth, God's grace is also giving them warning about what's going to happen if they do not follow what God has called them. Now many people ask, well, why did God put the tree in the garden in the first place? Because as the tree is there, it is a representation of their love for him, their worship of him. By not eating of the one tree, they were declaring that God's word was far more important than their desire. And so it was a way for God to be worshipped. By saying, I give you every other tree, millions of other trees, just don't eat one. Well, you know what happens, of course. We pick it up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where we see the story of our fall. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Let's pause there for a moment. I don't know really how to apply this, but somehow animals, or at least the serpent, talked to Adam and Eve. And there's no surprise by this. There's no explanation of it. Eve responds to this animal that's talking. Now, we know later on that this is actually not just the serpent. This is actually Satan himself who rebelled against God. And so Satan here is speaking, and he comes and he says, you sh- did God tell you you shouldn't eat of the tree of which uh, in the garden God commanded you that? And the woman said it to the serpent, notice it, we may eat of the, free, uh, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it lest you die. By the way, she adds a law to it. God says, don't eat of it. She says, not only should we not eat, we shouldn't touch it. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was be the desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice the response. Here we are in the garden, the sinful fall takes place, and their immediate reaction is to cover themselves. Notice the result of sin is immediate guilt and shame. The first thing they do is hide their distinguishable parts. All of a sudden they realize that there's something they didn't know beforehand that now they know, and now they feel shame and guilt, and so they hide. Now if you read on here, what happens? God shows up. And God asks a question. He comes to Adam and he says, Adam, where are you? And if you've been here for our series through Jonah, we said that God asks questions not because he needs information, but because he's going to the heart of transformation. God asks questions. Why? Because God has caught them red-handed. By the way, we parents do the same thing, don't we? When you catch your kids red-handed, what is our normal response? Even though we know exactly what's happening, we usually ask a question. I remember the story when my, my boys were younger. We have four sons, and when they were younger, I remember they, they were about eight, seven, five, and three. There was a day where the older boys were off school, and so all the boys were home, and here is Allison juggling all the duties of, of mom. I was at work, and she told the story when I got home that uh, she, during kind of the middle of the day, she walked into the bathroom and noticed our youngest son, Isaac, 
taking a bath cup, a cup that they use in the bathtub, and he was emptying the toilet bowl. This is why we put gates everywhere when they were younger. They were legal cages. We would cage them in. But he was in there emptying the toilet bowl, having a great time. And so what does Allison do? She walks into the bathroom, and her first thought is, her first statement, her first question is, Isaac, what are you doing? And she tells the story well that immediately he drops the cup, and with his big brown eyes and cute little dimples, he looks up and goes, what? He's shocked, right? He's caught in the act. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? That is exactly what, how God responds to Adam and Eve. He comes to Adam, he says, where are you, Adam? He knew where Adam was. He wasn't trying to get information. He was going after the heart. He was going after transformation. And then he responds, God responds, what we call the curse. God responds with the consequence of their action. Take a look, chapter 3, verse 14. It says, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And the word there is against your husband, but he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. You should plant, eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you're going to eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Notice God comes and he curses. He curses the serpent and he says, now you're going to crawl on your belly for the rest of your days. Now you're going to be low to the ground. The implication is this, this serpent could actually walk at some point. And God says, no longer, you're going to be cursed. You're now going to crawl on your belly. He looks at Adam and Eve. By the way, notice, very clear distinction, he doesn't curse Adam and Eve personally. He curses the serpent personally, but he doesn't curse Adam and Eve personally. No, instead, he curses the domain of Adam and Eve. He looks at Eve and he says, Eve, from now on, when you have children, there's going to be pain in childbirth. And ladies, if you've had babies, isn't that true? You go into the hospital, and you get yourself a legal drug dealer <laughs> who gives you an epidural or some medication to ease the process of birth. There's now pain in childbirth. There's now tension in relationships. Notice it says, you'll be against your husband. There's some tension in relationships. What should be easy is no longer easy. Then he looks at the man. He looks at Adam. He says, Adam, as a result of what you've done, I'm going to curse the ground. Now everything that you try to initiate and cultivate will now bear thorns and thistles. Now the things that are meant to grow easily are going to be difficult. By the sweat of your face, you will now have to make bread. What should be provided with simplicity now comes with, with great complexity. By the way, men, we know this, don't we? And, by, and I would dare say this is not just related to us physically. This is related to every area of our life. 
Isn't it true now the things that we think should come easy don't? The things that we try to fix break down. The things that we try to put together don't last. The things that we try to build just they, they, they tear down and they break. Why? Because now life brings thorns and thistles. By the way, this is even true in our relationships. I don't know about you men, but I want to come home after a long day of work and walk in the door, and I want my wife to go, wow, you, you hunk of burning love. Dave, I've been waiting for you all day. Come, come with me. That's what I'm looking for, but it bears thorns and thistles. No, it doesn't happen that easily, and I got a dad bod. Now, dad bods are in, according to my wife, which is good. But right, it doesn't come natural. Now, everything that's meant to be easy bears thorns and thistles. That's the consequence of the fall. You and I have these consequences that we find as a result of the fall. And then we find the greatest consequence, or the, the most consequential consequence, and that is found in verse 19. Notice it. For you're going to return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now, there's separation from God. You and I will now die. We have death as a result of the fall. We experience a dying process at the moment of birth. Our cells begin to die more than they reproduce, and eventually the reproduction slows down, and we, we, we pass away. We get gray hair and wrinkles, and slowly our bodies begin to break down. Why? Because death pursues. It's a result of the fall. And ultimately, there's separation from God. God kicks them out of the garden. Certainly, there's physical separation, but there's also spiritual separation. Now, we need help. Now, we are fallen. Now, we need redemption. We need a Savior. See, what we find here in the very beginning is what I would call point one in our notes, and that is this, that Christmas actually begins as a result of the curse. Christmas is a result of the curse. The fact that you and I, in our season, will celebrate Christmas is a declaration that we are desperately in need of help. It is a declaration that we need a Savior. Why? Because we're fallen. It is a, it is a proclamation that you and I cannot save ourselves. We need some help, and God needs to come to our rescue. See, Christmas is the result of a curse. This curse is what made Christmas even necessary. God in his great plan knew that he would come even before he created us. In his grace and mercy, he still creates us. And Christmas comes because we are cursed. Our salvation actually is a curse. It's a curse in our domains, it's a curse it, 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 under the serpent, it's a curse of separation between us and God. But in the midst of this curse, in the midst of this consequence, we find also a message of hope. Notice verse 15, it's eye-opening. Right in the middle of what God is saying in Genesis chapter 3, God gives us hope. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Number two, Christmas is not only a curse, but Christmas is the fulfillment of the promise of the curse breaker. That's number two. Christmas is the fulfillment of the promise of a coming curse breaker. God, in the very beginning, knowing that now Christmas has to come because of a curse, gives a promise before he ever curses our domains by saying, all right, I'm going to come take care of this. He gives a promise of a future curse breaker. Now, this is eye-opening. Notice here, 
he gives it before he ever gives a consequence to Adam and Eve. He looks at the serpent and he says, this is the deal, you're going you're gonna to crawl on your belly for the rest of your life, but then I'm going to make a promise. And notice what he says, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Here's what God does. God lays out a battle line and says, here's the deal, today I'm going to begin to do battle with Satan. I am going to do battle. I'm not just declaring war. I'm going to start a war with Satan himself. I'm going to declare this war, and the war is going to be won as a basis of my goodness and faithfulness. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. Notice God doesn't look at Adam and Eve and say, you knuckleheads, good luck saving yourself. I'm done with you. Notice he doesn't look at Adam and Eve and say, hey, here's some some aspects of my grace, now good luck trying to solve your problem. You created it, you get yourself out of it. God draws a line in the sand and says, I am going to go to battle for you. There will be hostility between the seed of Satan and the seed of the offspring yet to come, the, the, the seed of the woman yet to come, and, and I'm going to draw the line in the sand and I'm going to do battle on your behalf. I am I'm going to obligate myself and I'm going to inaugurate a warfare with the enemy on your behalf. Right here from the very beginning, as the moment of sin, God says, I'm going to go to war for you. For you. And he follows it up with a promise. Notice the promise. Verse 15. He shall bruise your head, that the offspring of the woman. You, Satan, will bruise his heel. I love this because God gives a promise before he ever brings a consequence. Anybody out there that would say, well, God is the mean God in the Old Testament, or he's a vengeful God? I mean, Genesis tells us the difference. Genesis gives us a different perspective, right? Here is God who is actually giving an aspect of grace and a promise before he ever gives the curse that belongs to the man and woman. And he says this promise. He says, there will come a day when the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent will bruise, crush his heel. I love this word bruise. It's actually the word in Hebrew, shuf. It, it means to crush, to grind, or even to snap. It's, it's a little bit deeper than the, our, our translation, the ESV translated it bruise. It's actually deeper than that. It's not just bruise. It's the idea of being crushed or snapped or grind it down. And here is the promise that says, one day this serpent will have his head crushed, snapped, grinded. One day this offspring will have his heel crushed, snapped, grinded. Now, how these words are played out uh, really are meant to be a picture of what is yet to come. But it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about it for a moment. If, if you've ever, ever seen a snake, the great thing about cold weather is you don't find many snakes in your yard. The bad thing about cold weather is, weather is they all move into the house. But when it's fall or spring or summer, you go out to the yard and, and you see a snake, what happens? That snake certainly can bite you, but where is it going to bite you most? Now, there are some snakes that can jump up and bite in the neck in these type of places if you corner them. They're not usually in our climate or culture. They're usually found in jungles, and they're pretty large. But most of the time, snakes in our yard, if we walk up to one and they're going to bite us, where are they going to bite us? They're going to bite us in the ankle or the leg. They're going to bite us in the heel. And what is the reaction? The reaction could be, in that moment, is I'm going to stomp its head. Now, most of us know better than to try to put our feet on a snake. But we could stomp its head. The image here 
is there certainly going to be a moment where the Satan, where the serpent, where Satan himself will bruise the offspring's heel, but in response, the offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. I don't know about you, I would rather have my heel crushed than my head crushed. Because my head being crushed, there's a picture of finality. There's a picture of fatality that's given in that. Here is the promise, right? There's going to be a day where the Satan thinks he's winning, but God is going to flip it and actually use it for his glory, and he's actually going to get victory because the serpent's head will be crushed. And we know this is an image eventually of the cross. Right, The cross comes, and what Satan believes is a victory, he gives a punch to Jesus Christ, ends up being what Christ used, God uses, to get victory. He dies on the cross for us, and then walks out of the grave, and he stomps on the serpent's head. Now, the serpent isn't fully dead yet, and there's still a day coming that we hold on to in hope that one day the serpent will be done away with. Satan will be done away with. But what stands out to me here isn't just that this is going to happen. What stands out to me as I read this is that God gives his game plan from the very beginning. I mean, think about that for a moment. Some of you probably watched a football game yesterday. There's a big game on called the Big Ten Championship. Could you imagine Urban Meyer going up to Northwestern's coach and saying, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the kickoff, we're going to receive the ball, and we're going to run to the right-hand side, and we're going to run it for 15 yards on the return where they're going to get in the huddle, and we're going to hand the first play of the game, we're going to hand it off to Dobbins, who is going to run on the right, left-hand side on a little sweep move. We're going to pull our guards to come over to the left-hand side, and we're going to run them off the edge, and we're going to run them. He's going to go about 12 yards. And then, after that, we're going to throw, we're going to throw a pass. We're going to throw an out pattern uh, about 20 yards down the field because we have four receivers that, that have over 1,000 yards. And so Haskins is going to throw this pass, and we're going to get about 15 to 20 yards off of that. We'll have two first downs. We're going to move the ball, and eventually this is how it's going to happen. Can you imagine if he did that? No coach would do that. They would lose their job in a day. Here is God in Genesis 3 saying, Serpent, here's how it's going to happen. Satan, here's how it's going to happen. You're going to think you have the victory, but in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to crush your head. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use what you think is the victory as a means of victory for me. This offspring that you're going to attack is actually going to destroy you. I'm going to bring about a savior through this woman who's going to rescue this cursed moment. We see the promise of this curse, this curse breaker. That is to come in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, God gives us this promise. In fact, scholars, or you go back to the early church, Arrhenius, who was a student of the, the apostle John, he calls this the proto-evangelium. That sounds a, a bit odd, proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium means first gospel. This is the first moment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a message that God is going to redeem. Right from the very beginning, God promises Christmas will come. God says, there will be a day that I will come, that this offspring will be born and will do battle with the enemy. We see here the first gospel, the first promise of Christmas. Now, the question is, how did this come about? How did God accomplish this? This leads, this leads to point three, and that is this, that Christmas comes, Christmas is accomplished in the most unlikely of ways. This does not happen in the way that you and I think it would. Right, if we were reading this story, we would think that God would show up as a hero, that God would show up as a king, that God would show up as a god, as he is, and he would show up and wipe everybody out, much like the heroes we have in our Avenger movies. 
But he doesn't do that. He comes in the most unlikely of ways. I want to flip over to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to spend the rest of our time here. Philippians chapter 2. And what we find is one of the most beautiful pictures of Christmas anywhere in the scripture. In fact, I would dare say if if the Bible was a mountain range, Philippians chapter 2 would be Mount Everest. It would be one of two largest pinnacles of the Bible. The reason why is because this is the story of Christ's first coming, the incarnation, from heaven's perspective. It's, It's from heaven's perspective, what did it look like that Christ came? We find it in Philippians chapter 2. It's absolutely beautiful. If Luke chapter 2, the well-known Christmas passage, Luke chapter 2 that we'll probably all read at some point during this Christmas season, if Luke chapter 2 is the historical story of Jesus coming, Philippians chapter 2 is the theological reason for Christ's coming. Take a look with me. We'll start in verse 5, Philippians chapter 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christmas comes in the most unlikely of ways. I want to look at three things here in this text. First of all, we see Christ before the incarnation. Christ's position before the incarnation. Notice the description it gives here in Philippians 2. It says, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with a thing to be grasped. Christ's position before the incarnation was he was in the form and function and equality of God. This word form is the word in Greek, morphe. You've probably have heard the word morph. That's the word. Morph is, it means form or shape. It's the idea that he represented, he was a picture of God in form. God, he was the glimpse of God in form and function. Oh, by the way, the word metamorphosis means to change form. We know that when a moth becomes a butterfly, it's called metamorphosis. It's changing its form. Here we find that Jesus was in the form of God. Now, this word form, uh, just to give you an image of this, if I were to walk in here this morning wearing full-out Ohio State football gear, I'm talking helmet, pads, shoulder pads, everything, full Ohio State football gear, it doesn't matter the swagger I walk in with, None of you are going to believe I'm an Ohio State football player. You're not. Probably most of you won't. Because you would look at me and say, man, that guy's too short. He's a little too stubby. He's stocky. He's not quite ripped like those players or his athletes. He's not a lineman for sure. He's not that big. Right, you would immediately, then you would say, hey, why don't you try to run? Let's see how you run in the pads. You would see me run and you'd be like, yeah, he's not an Ohio State football player. <laughs> but can I tell you? I did play in the Washington County Junior Football League in Maryland. That was fifth through eighth grade. And I, I gotta be honest, I was a legend. I was. In fact, I broke records for passing yards. I was a quarterback. I broke records for passing yards. And the reason for that is because there was a guy on our, our team named Charlie Ward. He ended up playing at the University of West Virginia. 
and he went to high school. And I remember I would throw the ball as a quarterback. I threw it as far as I could, and somehow he would just come out of nowhere and catch it. He was a phenomenal athlete. And so I actually broke records as a quarterback. They held for decades, true story, they held for decades in the Washington County Junior Football League. And so when I go back home, I'm a legend. I was going to say in my own mind, but that takes away your love for me. But if I walked out here with a pad, you would say, there's no form that shows Dave as a football player. Jesus was in the form of God. When, when you would see Jesus, you would understand that he was God. And this is before the incarnation. Before he becomes flesh, he was fully God. In fact, notice what it says next. Not only was he in the, in the form of God, but he didn't count equality as a thing to be grasped. He was equal to God. He was God fully. Fully in function and form, he was God. And notice he didn't count it as something to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it with white knuckles. He didn't say, I have the right, I have the ability, I have the power to do this, and I don't care what anybody says, I'm going to hold on to my deity as God. I am God, I'm going to hold on to my glory, I've got it all. Now this is a contrast to Adam and Eve, isn't it? The serpent comes to them and says... Hey, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. What do they do? They said, I'm going to grasp at something I don't have. I'm going to go against what God has spoken. I'm going to grasp for what I want, I desire. Here is God who has the right to grasp to his, his perfection, to his glory. And what does he do? He doesn't count as a thing to be grasped. See, before the incarnation, he had the position of God. But what happened? Now we see what, what I would consider the Christ's humility at the incarnation. Christ's humility at the incarnation. Notice what it says, verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Notice it says he, he emptied himself. He didn't count equality as a thing to be grasped. No, instead he emptied himself. Beautiful word here, this word emptied himself. It's the, the Greek word ekonosin. And it literally means to, to empty or to spill. Jesus spilled out his form, spilled out his image, spilled out who he was for our sake. He became a servant. Now, the question is, what did he empty himself of? Some will say, well, he emptied himself of his divinity, that he stopped being God. But that's not true, is it? When we read the Gospels over and over again, he called himself God. He claimed to be God. In fact, he was put on a cross by the Romans because the Jews convinced them that he blasphemed, meaning he claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. That was their belief. He was claiming to be God. That's why they put him on a cross. Some believe that he emptied himself of his power. Well, certainly he didn't use all the power that he had. In the garden, remember in the garden of Gethsemane, it says that he could have ta- called 10,000 angels, but he used his power over and over again. He healed the lame. He, he caused the blind to see. He raised the dead to life. He calmed the storm. He used his power in certain situations. Certainly limited, but he had the right to his power. I believe he emptied himself of his glory. His glory. And the whole picture of that is he put flesh on himself so that now his glory was veiled behind human flesh. By the way, we saw his glory in multiple occasions, didn't we? Remember the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John goes up on the mountain with Jesus, and what happens? He shows a, a, just a bit of his glory, and they couldn't even stand it. It was so immense. He covered himself in flesh. In fact, in John 17, listen to these words. He prays this prayer to the Father. He says, Father, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have give, given me to do. 
And now, Father, listen to this, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He emptied himself of glory, and now he says, hey, one day I want that glory back. I'm going to get that glory back that you have given to me. See, Jesus, at the incarnation, stripped himself of the insignia of majesty. And notice it says he did two things. He came as a servant. And he came born in the likeness of men. He was born. You know what I love about Christ's coming? Is he came in the exact way that we've been cursed. He came by being born. Remember, the woman would have pain in childbearing. He came and touched that pain. He, he experienced that pain. His mother, Mary, the virgin, experienced the pain of childbirth. He then came into a world where his dad was a carpenter, and he, he, by the sweat of his brow, had to work to accomplish things that would break, thorns and thistles that would bear. See, Jesus entered into the curse in the most unlikely of ways. He emptied himself and became a servant, obedient even to the point of death, the death of the cross. See, he could have come in a palace he could have come with a hammer in his hand, but he came to a virgin. He came to peasants. He came in obscurity. He came in a stall with manure and animals. He was laid in a, laid in a borrowed trough. See, he could have come in any different way, but he didn't. He came in the most humble of ways. The Bible says, for our sake, he became poor. He became poor think about that for a moment the sovereign of the universe becomes dependent fully dependent God becomes incognito in fact I wrote a, a few thoughts just to paint this picture bear with me for a moment think about this the divine word was not able to utter a word he could only cry the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end the alpha and the omega had to feed himself had to put his clothes away and his toys away and clean up his room the one who never sleeps, God, now tired as a man. The one who created the oceans and the seas and the bodies of water now became thirsty. The one who provided manna to his people in the wilderness now was hungry. The one who flung the stars into space now slept under the stars. The one who inhabited heaven's ivory, ivory places was now born in a borrowed cattle shed. The omniscient, all-knowing God had to learn how to talk and walk as a baby, as an infant, as a child. The eternal word of God had to learn how to read. The beloved son of God became the rejected son of man, the one who had never experienced sin, absolute perfection, took sin upon himself on the cross, experienced the weight of our curse. See, he humbled himself. From cradle to, to the cross, he humbled himself for us. See, Chris, Christmas is God's eviction notice to death and sin. Christmas is a reminder that God has come for us. His promise has been accomplished and will be accomplished. That leads to point four, and that is this. Christmas isn't the end. Christmas isn't the end. You, you might say, Dave, well, wait a minute here. Why is it that I, feel still the way, I still feel the weight of my curse? Why is it that I still feel the weight of the curse of the world? Why is it that I still feel like the world is broken? Here's why, and I want to give you a simple answer, but it's, but it's a profound answer. We still feel the weight of that curse. Even though God came, God died, God rose again, the reason we, we still feel the weight of that curse is because God knows that in order for him to get rid of sin, it means he has to get rid of us. 
I want you to think about that for a moment. If God were to empty the world of all sin, all wickedness, of all the effect of the curse, the only way that God could do that would be to get rid of each, each of us, to get rid of the people on earth. One day, God is going to come back. The Bible promises that he's going to come again. And when he comes again, he will undo all undoing. He will undo all injustice. He will undo all sin. He will accomplish the work that he's promised to do. But he came the first time because he knew, knew that we needed rescue. In fact, there are people that will come and they'll say, Dave, you know, I just pray the Lord will return one day. Can I be straight up with you this morning? I actually don't pray that. I pray, God, don't come back yet. Don't return yet. You know why? There's more people still that need rescued. The fact that God doesn't come yet, why he didn't just come down and say, all right, serpent, you're done. Because God knew that in order to do that, he'd have to wipe everybody else out. And in his grace and mercy, he continues not to return yet. Why? Because he's looking out for you and I. And he's saying there's more people that need to hear it. There's no more people that need to rescue. There's more people that need to follow me. There's no more people that Crossroads needs to have baptized. There's more people that Crossroads need to go out and impact with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, there's more people, and that's why God, in his grace, doesn't have the end come yet. But notice, there's a promise. Notice it ends. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. Christmas isn't the end. No, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That's why you and I, we don't worship a baby in a manger. That's why we don't worship a God on the cross. No, you and I, we worship a resurrected living Savior who is at work in our world today. We worship a Savior who is alive and reigning forevermore that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And I say this all the time when I read this passage, but it's either by faith or by force, our knee will bow. We respond to that truth in faith and say, God, I believe, I trust in you, I believe this day will come, and so why not do it voluntarily? Or it will be done one day, at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Now, what do we do with that? And that leads to the last point, Christmas is a mindset. Number five, Christmas is a mindset. Notice verse five, this whole passage in Philippians two begins with this statement. It says, have this mind in yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. Christmas becomes a mindset mindset of humility. See, at Christmas we're constantly battered with, with advertisement that says get this thing you don't have. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I remember when my boys were younger if we'd be watching something on TV, every commercial with a toy on it, they would be like, oh dad, I really want that. Oh dad, I really want that. I mean, every toy that would come on, okay, maybe not for us Barbie dolls, but every other toy that was any action figure or any weapon of choice, right, Nerf guns and these type of things, oh dad, we gotta get that, that would be awesome. And I gotta confess, I'm an adult and I still sometimes feel that. They'll show a commercial for golf clubs, I'm like, man, if I just had that, I'd be hitting the ball even better. And man, tickets to the game, and, and, and I mean, the bigger TV, it's cheaper and bigger. Because you, you know, HD isn't enough. Now you need 4K. You need to be able to smell what's happening on the screen. <laughs> what happens? We're bombarded at Christmas with get, have, receive, accomplish, get more, right? We're bombarded with that. What would happen 
if at this Christmas we said, God, what is it that I can empty myself of because of you? See, if we're supposed to have the same mind of Christ, then the answer is humility. What would happen if we said, God, and it's not about possessions, but God, what is it that you're asking me to empty myself of just as you emptied yourself of your glory? What if I said this thing is not worthy to be grasped, but I'm willing to let go of it for whatever you want? Maybe for some of you, it's the idea of salvation, and you need to let go of your own self, trying to think that you can save yourself and rescue yourself from a curse that you cannot rescue yourself from. In fact, it's, it's like, it's like the, the stain of paint on your hand. The more you rub it, the deeper it gets. And maybe for you, it's saying, I'm going to empty myself of my sin and put it at the feet of Christ, and I'm going to ask him to come into my life and change me. God is faithful to do that. Maybe for some of you, God is saying, let this mind be in you, which is in me. Maybe you need to empty yourself of a habit, a sin that so easily entangles you. Maybe it's an attitude. In fact, he goes on and talks about grumbling. Grumbling is an indication of our humility. You want to know whether you're humble or not? Do you grumble? What do you grumble about? Grumbling will give an indication of humility. What is it this morning that maybe God is saying, empty it? Maybe it's a reaction. Maybe it's a response. It's a call to humility to say, what is it that I need to empty for the glory of Jesus Christ? Have this mind in us, which is also in Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Christmas is the result of a curse. Christmas is the fulfillment of a curse breaker. A promise that was made that one would come to crush the serpent's head. Christmas came in the most unlikely of ways. God came as a baby, a servant. And now Christmas is a mindset. Humility. Humility is what leads us to hope. See, when I put myself in a right position, I now hope rightly. I now live faithfully based upon the promise of God in the past and the hope I have set for the future. And maybe you're here this morning and and you're feeling the weight of hopelessness. May humility be the first step to being hope-filled. Maybe there's something today you need to empty yourself of that I need to empty myself of. And say, God, as I'm humble now, create in me a clean heart that I may serve you, may glorify you. Do in me what only you can do for your glory. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we need this reminder this season, this season all about getting, having, more and more. God, we thank you that you came, that right from the very beginning when the curse was brought, when the the fall happened, the first thing you gave was a promise. You, You cursed the serpent and you gave a consequence to Adam and Eve, but you started with a promise to us that said one day the the, the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And then you came in the most unlikely of ways. Yes, the consummation of that moment is not yet complete, but you came humbly. You went to a cross for our sins. You walked out of a grave on our behalf. And you promised that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Whether by faith or by force, we will confess that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. And now you wait. You, you wait to consummate our redemption. You wait to consummate our salvation. You wait until the serpent's head is yet crushed. Why? Because of your great love. Because of your great grace. 
because of your great mercy, because you've given us a hope that does not disappoint us. And so, God, may we live in that hope. And if there's anything we need to empty, may we empty ourselves of it so that you will be known, that you will be glorified. And that one day, Lord, our humiliation will lead to exaltation, where it will be worth it, Lord, when we see you face to face. So, God, may we follow you in faith. May we follow you in humility. All for your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Love you guys. God bless you.